Exodus chapter 2. We stopped last week at the end of uh, verse 10 of chapter 2, and it was actually a very, very good uh, place to stop, uh, just in terms of the whole sequence of, of things, because it, there is a 40-year gap between verse 10 and verse 11 in Exodus uh, chapter 2. Uh, Moses, is, the first 40 years of his life, his life was broken up into three 40-year sections. The first 40 years of his life he spent uh, in Egypt, the son of, of Pharaoh's uh, daughter, and uh, as Stephen declared, uh, there learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, mighty in words and deeds. He was a beautiful child, grew up uh, in the midst of power, grew up highly educated, uh, grew up with uh, very, uh, not only learned, but the ability to communicate his, his learning. So here he is, and uh, Josephus declares concerning him that uh, Moses was in line to become Pharaoh himself. I mean, it's just like uh, blue skies, nothing but blue sky. I mean, it just looks like just un and the future for him is just going to be unbelievably beautiful. He would be the envy of, uh, in terms of advantage of, of, you know, most of the world if you were to look at that. And so that particular 40 years ends. So when we head into verse 11, he's 40 years old now. He's not 16, he's not 26, he's 40 years uh, old. And it came to pass in those days, so now we know him as, as an adult, fully an adult for sure, right? Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out to his brethren, and notice that, he's talking about the Jews, and the Jews refers to as his brethren. He went out to his brethren and he looked at their burdens, and uh, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he comes out there and he's looking around and all of the uh, Hebrew slaves and uh, as he witnesses the oppression of, of the Egyptians upon the, the Jews and all, he takes, and as we're going to see in a moment, verse 12, he is going, he's forced to make a choice at this moment in his mind whether he's going to side with the Egyptians or whether he is going to side with the Jews, and he chooses to side with the Jews that he calls uh, his brethren. Now, I don't know, and, this, and you can take this for what it's worth, but, but again, I go back to his mother having him for those early years of his life before he was weaned and then delivered to Pharaoh's daughter. And all of the things that she must have endeavored to pour into his young life concerning his people, concerning uh, the God of his people. She did, whatever she did, she did enough to cause him to realize that he, for all of the education of Egypt, for all of, of the access, the popularity, the advantage of Egypt, whatever she sowed into his life at a young age, when he reached 40 years old and was forced to choose between one or the other, without hesitation, he identifies with the Jews. I think it's a great encouragement to us as parents. Train up a child, the Bible says, and the way that he should go, and when he is older, he will not depart from it. So he makes a, a decision here now to identify and decide with, with his uh, brethren. Now this beating of the Hebrew by an Egyptian, I mean, without a doubt, it had to be that he looked at that and, and the Egyptian was beating him to the you know, the edge of death, I mean, life-threatening kind of, uh, of way. So uh, I think he, he looks at things and he, he looks at this whole system that he's been raised in that's been so good to him, but now the light goes on and he realizes, I've been the recipient of all of this, but it has required the oppression of an entire group of people, in fact, my people, to sustain this kind of life and privilege that, that I have. And, and he thinks nothing of, 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 of jumping ship from the one camp uh, to the other. And so he looked this way and he looked that way. He looked to the left and to the right. But because he, why? He knows he's about to do something wrong, right? You don't look left and right and left. 
unless you know you're going to do something wrong. But he, do, he makes a big mistake here. Because when you're about to do something wrong, not enough to look left or right, is it? Got to look up. And uh, he doesn't look up to God's watching. And uh, so he looks this way and that way. When he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. That's murder. That's murder. We think of Mo- Moses. We esteem Moses very highly and rightfully so. Ultimately, he's going to become the, described as the meekest man in all of the world. Now, he tells us that by the Spirit of God. But, but he, he changes but he's, he, he could have a hot temper in, in where he was. So he, he takes and, and he kills this man. Now, maybe even in God's eyes, God would look at what the Egyptian was doing and it, it warranted uh, that strength of, of judgment. But it wasn't Moses' place to do it. To take the law in his hands and, and to kill uh, this Egyptian. But that's exactly what he, he proceeds uh, to do. And, uh, and he realizes, I'm sure, that when he, though he's going to try and cover it up, he, he knows that he is crossing a, a threshold now. What he's about to do is something that's going to identify him uh, permanently if it becomes uh, known. So he kills uh, the, the Egyptian, hides him in the sand. Now this is interesting about Moses. Um, Moses, we're going to see it over and over again. He hates oppression. He hates to see people oppressed. He hates might makes right. He hates the abuse of other people by those that are more powerful than them, the unjust abuse. So he rises up now at this point and uh, he is now going to, you know, stand against the abuse of Egypt against the Jews. So he's kind of at a point right now in his, his life. He, he esteems himself called by God to be a deliverer of the Jews from the oppression of, of Egypt. And so now he's going to deliver them one Egyptian at a time. <laughs> the problem is he's 40 years early. He's 40 years early. The 400 years that God had said that they would be in Egypt before God was going to bring them out, before they would be ready to then enter into the promised land, that 400 years has not passed yet. And impatience is a tremendous danger in, uh, in, in our service to the Lord. So, but, but this is what he does. He, he thinks he's going to j- jump in and uh, they're going to recognize that he is now going to lead them out of this bondage and, and that kind of thing. So he, he makes a decision. I am with these people. I am with them. I am with their uh, God. And in doing so, throws everything away. I mean, in one... 30-second decision, he throws away all of his education for practical use in, in Egypt's empire. He throws away all of his advantage, all of his connections. He throws it all away. I mean, any, 90% of the world would look at him and say, you have made the stupidest decision that a person, you throw all of that away to identify with this persecuted, powerless people? That's ridiculous. And, and yet it wasn't ridiculous in God's eyes. It wasn't right what he did here, but God is going to redeem it. I'll tell you, when, when God calls you to do certain things, it's going to look stupid to about 90% of, of the world. I remember when we moved here. I'm thinking, this is no Moses thing. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm lost perspective. Relax. But I remember when I was, you know, quitting the phone company and all and to, to come, it was in the middle of a recession. I tried to transfer over here and continue to, you know, have a living in, in the whole deal. They were laying people off to 10 or 15 years seniority here in cable splicing. I couldn't get a job o- over here on, on things and yet we had a strong sense that we were supposed to move. And I remember one person spoke about a job at the phone company, especially in a recession. They said, well, that's a job you, know, you can, that'll be secure until hell freezes over. Probably not quite that long, uh, but it was a very, very secure kind of job, and it looked like, it just looked ridiculous to take that step at that time. But ridiculous to everyone but God. As small potatoes as all of this is, it's a pretty big deal uh, to me. So, 
He then went out, and uh, the second day, the day after, and behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. So they're fighting with one another physically and, and all, and he said to the one who did the wrong. Now here, again, even when he's got two Jews, he looks at the oppressor, the one that's wrong in this. You're oppressing another person. He can't stand it. And, 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 and at all and he said to him why are you striking your companion and he said doesn't give him an answer probably because there's no good answer so but he says who made you a prince and a judge over us do you intend to kill me uh, as an oppressor just the way you killed the Egyptian yesterday and then Moses feared and said surely this thing is known he says I'm cooked uh, the, because if these two people know, and they know it on a conversational basis, then the word has spread, I didn't do so great a job of killing someone and hiding them in the sand. This news is going to spread all through the ranks of, of Egypt that I uh, have, have done this. Now, in, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is, is giving his uh, sermon uh, to the religious leaders in that day, at this point we know from his sermon that Moses is really disappointed with the reaction of, of, of one of his, his Hebrew brother who rebukes him and basically rejects him as a deliverer at this point. Moses thought that um, the, that the Jewish people would recognize him immediately as a deliverer and, and get on uh, board with him. They would understand God has sent him, God has prepared him to do all of this, but they didn't understand. Now, having uh, murdered an Egyptian, uh, remember he is an adopted Hebrew, so that's not going to sit well in Egypt. When Pharaoh, this is kind of his step-grandfather, heard of this matter, hey, relationship is off, he sought to kill Moses. So he sends out whatever he's got to send out now, find this guy and and enact the death penalty against him. But Moses then fled from the face of Pharaoh, he flees out of Egypt, and he dwelt in the land of Midian. So he goes uh, due east across the Sinai Peninsula, super arid. I mean, (laughs) that is a desert, really rough area. And he makes his uh, way uh, all the way into what would be the northwestern part of Saudi Arabia uh, today. Again, very, very much a, a desert area. He lands among the Midianites. The Midianites are blood relatives to the Jews uh, because they were descendants of Abraham through Midian, one of uh, the six sons that Abraham had through Keturah, his wife following the death of, of Sarah. So he comes and, and flees to Midian, and what does he do? He sat down by a well. That's kind of like uh, 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 an ancient Starbucks. Uh, when, when you would flee to another, another city or something, everybody gets thirsty every day. So everybody's going to come to that well that day. You're going to meet the whole city or someone representing every family in the city in the course of that day. So he comes there and, and the place that a newcomer would come into a city would head right uh, to the well because there would be other travelers, there would be other shepherds, there would be the citizens of the city. They would be coming and going. So if you're wanting to connect and try to find a place to stay and that kind of stuff, good to go to the well. So now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And uh, they came and they drew water and uh, they filled the troughs to water their father's flock. So their father has a a flock uh, of of goats or sheep, probably goats, and um, they've gone through all of the effort of putting the skin down into the water, bringing it back up, and they fill the whole trough now with water for their uh, their sheep. They've done all of, of the labor. And, and then while, after they've done all, all the work, before their, the flock can get watered, then, then the shepherds came. Oh, those men. They came and they drove the uh, ladies away, but Moses stood up and helped them. And he watered the flock. He hates oppression. And it's not just in sticking up uh, for oppression against the Jews. He hates it wherever he sees it. So he sees these guys that come on the scene, might makes right. These are just a bunch of women. We can, you know, force them out of the way and use their labor for ourselves. Moses doesn't look and say, well, they're Midianites. I don't care about Midianites. In his core, he cannot stand this kind of thing. 
And so he rises up and, and uh, is uh, fearsome enough to drive off these shepherds and then proceeds to water uh, the flock of, of the women that he is defending. Well, after all this happens, they came to Ruel, their father, and said, and he said to them, Wow, you're, this is early. How, did you guys, how is it that you have come so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us. Now Moses looks very much like an Egyptian, probably a shaved head and all, the, uh, all, all these kinds of things so they don't know he's a Hebrew an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds and he also drew enough water for us and watered the flock I and mean, this guy showed up did a good thing for us I mean that's why everything happened so quickly and so Ruel says to his seven daughters unmarried daughters in essence what in the world are you doing leaving an eligible bachelor out by the well after he's done good to you he's got good character probably good looking and everything like that and I'm looking for husbands for you go get them anyway so but this is how it's put in the Bible so he said to his daughters and where is he see it's a little calmer and uh, why is that you have left the man <laughs> don't leave an eligible bachelor out there Call him that he may eat bread. And I'm for sure he's extending hospitality to him for the good thing that he's done there. But um, he, he's also, before this is over, Moses is going to be married into the family. Uh, so uh, this father-in-law knows uh, what it is that he's doing. So invite him, hospitality, let's bring him and invite him for dinner. And then Moses was content to live with the man. and He doesn't have any better offers. He's on the lamb and he's, he's got to, you know, uh, get established somewhere. And so Ruel gave Zephorah, his daughter, to Moses. And so they're married and her name means little bird. And so we can be thankful that she wasn't like uh, Big Eagle or Big Owl. There's going to be a problem in a couple of chapters, and it's a good thing that she's a little gal, uh, because Moses might have ended up whipped on, on this whole thing. And they're married, and then she bore him a son. They called his name Gershom, which means a stranger here. And they, they named uh, Gershom uh, after Moses' physical circumstance. He's a stranger in Midian, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Now, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt dies. And that does happen in the process of time, doesn't it? People do end up uh, dying. So here is his um, kind of step grandfather, the one that kind of put the um, uh, sentence out for his death and all, and, and now this man uh, dies. And so now it's going to be safe for Moses to, uh, to return, and it clears the way uh, for that. And then the children of Israel, they groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out. So all of the hard work, they've been enslaved in mass. They're doing these gigantic municipal slave projects for Egypt. It's been going on all of this time uh, for 40 years. This has been uh, going on while Moses has been in, in Midian. And there's a 40-year gap between uh, verse 23 uh, and then uh, uh, verse 1 of, of chapter 3. So 40 years, uh, the, they've been in tremendous bondage. All the oppression has continued and uh, it's just pure misery. They groaned because of the bondage. They cried out. Their cry came up to God because of the bondage. No, is it, nobody can help us but God. I mean, there's just no way out of this miserable thing for our families and for us. And then notice, so God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac, uh, with, uh, with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And, and so it doesn't mean that he had forgotten about them, but now it comes to the forefront of his mind. The word really means that he, he, he puts his focus firmly now on the promise that he had made to them to deliver them out of Egypt after 400 years and not only deliver them out of Egypt but into Canaan, a land flowing with, with milk and honey. So now he gives attention uh, to, uh, uh, to, to them in a special way and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. So, alright, he looks at his watch. 400 years have gone by. It's time to get them out of here according to his purposes. And now what's he got to do? He's got to find a deliverer to lead them out. 
and that deliverer is going to be Moses. But Moses is out of the delivery game <laughs> at this particular point uh, in his life. And now Moses was tending, chapter 3, verse 1, the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert. So he's in the Sinai Peninsula area, came to Horeb, uh, the mountain of God. And so... Uh, here, again, 40-year gap between uh, the time that Moses leaves Egypt, comes into Midian, and then he begins uh, uh, here and is going to have an encounter with God in chapter 3. It's, it's very, very fascinating uh, you know, to me with, with God in, in coming to Moses in, in this way and Moses' condition that he's in when God comes to him. Moses is now... 80 years old. Now, given the length of lifespan in those days, you're going to live to 120, so it would be comparable to somebody, one of us in this room, given our lifespans being about 46, 48 uh, years of, of, of age. And uh, after 40 years of being in Midian, what is he doing? He, he's a shepherd. And he is shepherding a flock out in the middle of the desert. And you know what's really weird about it? is after 40 years, he doesn't even have his own flock. He doesn't even have his own flock. He's shepherding the flock of his father, uh, father-in-law, and uh, hasn't even in that year kind of years. He's no Jacob. Jacob would have had his father-in-law's flock, and, you know, ten times the flock is, is before. But I'll tell you, he, he is, he's lost all drive. He's lost all ambition. I mean... God is going to come to him now at a time where he has lost all desire to free the world of oppression. Uh, he has nothing, you know, in his heart where he, earlier in his life, he had this great desire, you know, to change the world and, and all of these kinds of things. And by the time God comes to him now at this point, he doesn't want a flock of his own. He doesn't want anything great. All he wants to do is just have a fair meal on a given day, eat and drink and be left alone and raise his family and then die one day and, and go to heaven. That's all he wants to do. Just quietly walk with God, be this thing, this anonymous thing out in the middle of the desert, and, and that's it. That's, that's how he thinks the whole thing is, is going to end. Now you would look at this and these 40-year gaps and things, and you think, God has really wasted 40 years in Moses' life. I mean, look at that. I mean, how long do you have to wander around the Sinai Peninsula? I've never wandered around the Sinai Peninsula. I just flew in a plane over it one time. That is a rough place to scratch out a living. Really rough. And uh, so you look and say, what are you doing, God? I mean, he could be learning this or learning that and all of this, and you got him, you know, out in the middle of that nothing, nowhere, and, and everything. Couldn't have had better training. Couldn't it looks to, to the natural eye, everyone would look at it and say, it's a complete waste. What, they're do, what he's, he's doing right. But he could not have had better training for what God was going to call him to do with the final 40 years of his life because the final 40 years of his life are going to be spent shepherding the flock of God, the children of Israel, in that same area of the Sinai uh, Peninsula. You know, it's, it's just... We, I remember one time a guy uh, came to me and many, many years ago, I don't use recent counseling appointments as examples. We're talking about a zillion years ago. But he came to me, and he had, he, uh, he had come from prison. And, uh, and because of that being on his record, he could only get entry-level work to begin with. But he's a hard worker. And uh, so he came in, and he just said, Man, I'm just working so hard and everything like that, and they're just paying me minimum wage, and I know they're making tons of money off what I give them every day and the whole thing, and, and he's going into the whole, whole thing and all. And, it, what, you know, it was, uh, it was the consequences of his sin and where he was and stuff, but he was just trying to talk to somebody about it a little bit. And I told him, I said... Uh, listen, and I'm always the hero of all my counseling sessions. So you have, I got this one right, so I tell this story every once in a while. The rest of them, we just keep that top secret. But um, I told him, I said, you know, it, what God is teaching you in your life is not about, you know, the 375 or whatever it was, an hour that you're earning there. If, God, if you're in God's will doing 
what he wants you to do and you're where he wants you to be, the big picture of what he's training you about has nothing to do with dollars and cents. What he's teaching you is a discipline you've never had in your life. To get someplace on time, to work hard the whole time that you're there, not to do it as a man pleaser, but to do it as unto the Lord, and to do the extra and this and this and this. There's a whole world of, of wealth that you are gaining by holding that job that only God knows that you're gaining for something that's going to serve you for what God is, is going to do next. So never look at where God's got you in some kind of thing. You had these big hopes, these big dreams, this thing, and then now I'm just grinding out my life in some kind of an anonymous place, and I'm happy to do it now, and it's all going to be wasted in terms of of, uh, how God is going to use it. If we're in God's will, He's always doing something immediate in our life at that moment in time, but He's always working with His eye on the future. There's something being built in that years later perhaps we'll look back and say, I'm thankful for that. I get it now, Lord. Man, I was so... I didn't... I didn't... I'm, okay. I was even a little upset with you uh, related to that. I didn't get that, but now I get it. Thank you uh, for, for doing that. And Moses is in, in that, that kind of a place out there in that desert place, the back of the desert. I think in the old King James it's the back side of the desert and he's picking up the most important degree that he could pick up in life. That was his BSD degree, backside of the desert degree. And everyone's going to get one of those. You're going to serve the Lord on, on, on things. And so Moses' life span 120 years, first 40 years in Egypt, second 40 years out in the desert, just shepherding his father-in-law's uh, flock. The third section of 40 years, which now begins with this chapter, he's going to be, uh, be used by God to deliver the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt and then... Uh, endeavor to bring them to the promised land. He won't be able to take, uh, take them in for reasons we'll talk about later. Someone has perfectly encapsulated, I think, uh, Moses' life, this 40-40-40. He spent his first 40 years becoming something, his second 40 years becoming nothing, and then his third 40 years uh, learning that God can do something with nothing. And uh, so often uh, that, that is the case on things. So he's out there in the middle of the desert. I mean, there's no iPod, there's no uh, blue berries or raspberries or whatever those things, Bluetooths or there's no video games, no TV, no what or anything like that. It's pretty, uh, pretty quiet, pretty quiet existence. So he's out there, middle of this desert all along, and uh, unless he's Dr. Doolittle, there's no one to talk to. He's just got these sheep. And the angel of the Lord then appeared to him in a flame of fire. And this is none other than the Lord himself, as we'll see appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So all of a sudden this bush, uh, there's a fire in the bush. Now, that doesn't get him excited. That probably wasn't a rare thing out in that desert to see a bush uh, on fire. But, but something did catch his eye. And, and so he sees it on fire, and so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the thing that got his eye is, is that the bush was not consumed. It just kept burning and burning and burning, and the bush isn't turning into a, a pile of ashes. Now, Moses, he just said, we'll see this every day. And so he said, I will now turn aside. He talks to himself. Uh, you can do that on the desert, 40 years. I will now turn aside and see this great sight. He said, oh, here's something you don't see every day. And why the bush does not burn. And uh, so... This is what uh, catches his eye. And of course the reason that the, fi- that the bush uh, didn't burn is, is that it was a, 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 the fire represented the presence uh, of the Lord. And, uh, and, 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 and so uh, it, you know, it wasn't, wasn't uh, consumed. The fire is used as a, a symbol of God all through the scriptures because it, it illuminates, it, uh, it purifies, it warms, it does all these kinds of things that, that God does. Now, he looks at the bush and, and is, is, it's not, not being consumed. God does this through the bush for two things. Number one, to get Moses' attention. And then, and then number two, as a manifestation of his presence there, out in that desert, uh, to, to Moses. And the reason that the bush didn't burn, as we're going to see, is that it's a symbol of Israel. It's a symbol of, of Israel. The bush is a type of Israel in affliction. 
And why wasn't it destroyed? I mean, Israel ought to have been destroyed under the bondage of Egypt and all those things. The reason that it wasn't uh, Israel and and the Jews were not destroyed was the presence of God among them. The presence of God among them. I think additionally, all of this had to speak uh, to Moses of his own life. I mean, 40 years earlier, he takes and he kills an Egyptian and uh, tries to stop a fight between two Hebrews and just trying to do this little thing. I mean, it left him as a pile of ashes. He is burnt out in, you know, uh, two days of ministry. He's completely wiped out a heap of ashes and, and all. And yet here he looks at a fire that continues to burn and to burn and to burn. And it doesn't wipe out what it is that God is using now to burn in. And so he, he's got to be looking at this and say, how in the world does that kind of thing happen? What is the secret of that? And the secret of that is that whatever is fueled or empowered or indwelt by God, no matter how weak or feeble it is, even a bush in the desert will never end up an ash heap. And, and the secret he's about to learn personally, because he's a feeble bush. We're going to see that in just, just a moment. And he's about to blaze with unbelievable glory, with a power and a, a calling on his life that he just couldn't have dreamed about, in his, you know, even in his, his, his greatest day. And he is going to be a fire in the midst of Egypt that all of Egypt is not going to be able to, to put out. But he's not going to end up. Is, is, a, is an ash heap as a result of it. And the difference between what will happen now and what happened 40 years earlier is the presence of God in his life. The timing is right, the calling is now, and God's presence is in, in enabling is fully upon him. So, here is a bush, gets his attention, it's on fire, but it's not consumed. And so when the Lord saw that he had gotten Moses' attention, that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Now, how high do you think he jumped? (laughs) I don't know. Does does God like clear his throat to prepare you for the fact that this bush is going to talk to you in a moment? Moses, hey, whoa! You know, I mean, that would flip me out. Anybody ever walk up behind you and you don't know somebody's going to talk on things? You think you're out, nobody within a hundred miles of you in all directions. So you've got a couple unusual things here. Number one, you got a bush that isn't consumed. You got a, and now you got a bush that talks. And, uh, and then third of, of all, you got a bush with intelligence because it knows his name. Now that's, that's pretty, pretty weird. So God talks to him. And then Moses, though, I mean, he's dying for entertainment, apparently, because uh, he answers, here, here I am. So he's getting, you know, what's going on here with the Lord uh, speaking to him. And, uh, and, and so not only does the, 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 the bush speak, not only does the bush know his name, but the bush uh, knows how to give commands. And so he said to him, Do not draw near this place, the Lord said to Moses. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moses, take off your sandals here. The place that you're, you're standing on is holy ground. What is holy ground? Anywhere God is. Anywhere God is, anywhere His presence is being manifest. You know what's interesting? Now, I mean, uh, in that part of the, the, uh, of the world, in ancient times, you'd always take your shoes off when you went in, into a house. It was just a sign of respect in, in, in doing that. But it's interesting, when God, uh, later on, He takes all and describes all the clothing that the priests are supposed to wear, in the service to the Lord at the tabernacle and then at the temple mentions the, the you know the hats and the and the the robes and the sash and the everything nothing described for their feet nothing described for their feet very 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 likely that the Hebrew priests as they worshipped and, and, and served around those holy things in the temple did it barefoot just as an acknowledgement of the presence a reinforcement to them of the presence of the Lord in the middle of what it is uh, that they're doing. So, and moreover, God continues the conversation with Moses and said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I, I am the God that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob worshipped. You've heard about them. 
and you've heard about me in, in, in terms. In other words, I'm the God that has a very long, faithful history with the Jews. And I'm the God that has given them a promise that they, a prophecy that they would be 400 years in a foreign land and be afflicted in that land. But I'm the God who also gave the promise that you would be delivered out of that and into the land of Canaan. And I am the God who was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now I am going to be faithful to you and to the Hebrew uh, children. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. I mean, there's just this res- reverence and respect for God. His immediate response is to cover his, his face. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Now, sometimes we're going to be in the middle of something, that is so crushing and it's so difficult and it's so hard and it's so unfair and we can wonder does God even know what I'm going through and what I'm in the middle of and sometimes if he doesn't respond on a certain timetable then we can start to doubt his uh, involvement in our life his care for us and those kinds of things can't we, the thing we have to be careful of related to that, it, we, it, from the scriptures we know that he never takes his eye off of us. He's fully aware of what's going on in our life. But he's dealing with such a big picture. I, I want him just to deal with a picture that's about this wide and about this high. And just whatever is best for me and, and, and all... You know, let's forget any kind of grandiose plans for reaching the world or impacting the world or this bigger picture that you have, God. I I want it to happen this way and on this timetable in my life or otherwise I'm going to begin to doubt you. But God doesn't work that way. And God, thankfully... He, he doesn't, uh, uh, I can't badger him <laughs> into, you know, believing that in prayer. You know, in Jesus' name, I'm telling you, you know, like God gave us that. In Jesus' name is like the big gun we point at him. All right, it's come to this. In Jesus' name, I want this trial to end. Wait a so He disregards stuff like that. He's God, and, and he knows what's best. But what God is doing, when He delays to deliver us out of something like that, He's got a bigger plan. He is, he is working off of information we don't know. And He knows that if He jumps in in the way that I'm even asking Him to, will mar the whole thing. There is a timing issue to, to when God does what He does because He's factoring in a lot of really big things. So we have to stay patient in the middle of these circumstances. No, they will come to an end, but there's a reason if they continue, and, and there's a timing issue in what God is doing. God doesn't. I mean, God is a father. I mean, and, so, and, and for those of us who are parents, we would never want our child to needlessly be one moment longer in a, in a miserable circumstance, life-threatening circumstance, than, than was, was uh, necessary. We'd, we would deliver them immediately. And, and we are evil in comparison to him as, as, as human parents. And, and so it would only be as we looked and said, no, there's a whole big picture here that I can't explain to you, and you need to stay there. It's going to work out really good. And that's, and that's how God is, is working in this, this whole thing. So I know, I, I've seen, I've heard, I know, verse 7, and so now, the timing is right, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. So he's going to do two things. He's going to take them out of one place, He's going to take them into another place. That's the promise he's making. Number one, I'm going to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And number two, I'm going to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. That's dessert. That's good stuff. 
Milk and honey in those days, that was luxury kind of stuff. So he's talking about a land that's plentiful, it's abundant. You're not going to have to scratch out a living like in the Sinai Peninsula. This is, this, I'm going to take them into a really good land to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and, and I also have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh. <laughs> <You> just <laughs> Think about how that hit Moses. Me? <laughs> Boy, are you 40 years late. <laughs> I will send, therefore, I've seen it all. I'm going to take them out, out of this land. I'm going to bring them into the new land. Moses is probably tracking with them. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. And then he gets the news. Now, therefore, I will send you to Pharaoh. You're the one that I'm going to use, that I may bring my people and the children of Israel out of uh, Egypt. Now, it's interesting he, he declares there in, in verse uh, 8 that he's going to bring them, the children of Israel, he's going to bring them out of Egypt and he's going to take them into the promised land. But notice when he speaks in, to, to Moses in verse 10, he doesn't talk about taking them into the promised land. For Moses' part, Moses is just going to take them out of Egypt because there's going to be a failure and a reason why he doesn't then take them into uh, the promised land. But Moses said to God, and this is the first in a series of five excuses that uh, Moses is going to give to God and let God know that he has uh, the wrong guy. And Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So remember, he's in front of a, a burning bush here, and this conversation's going on. And he, he covers his face and, and, uh, out of uh, afraid to look on God. He takes his shoes off of his feet, all of this respect for God, but he doesn't think of anything about, uh, about arguing with God. It's a, it's a funny combination. <laughs> it can sometimes be in, in a vessel uh, of the Lord. Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. I mean, his, that's his immediate response, reaction is, who am I? Well, he's, he's fairly underwhelmed here on this thing. I, I, I mean, you could expect a little bit of excitement from him. And he has zero excitement for this call that God is calling him to do. He doesn't, see, he doesn't see why it can work. All he can see is why it won't work. God, you have chosen the wrong person. There's no faith here. There's only pessimism. And, uh, and, and so he's going to say, God, you, basically, you got the wrong guy. I can't do this. And uh, the interesting thing is, is that God does not accept the excuse and, and let him off of, of the hook. Moses is a different man from how he was 40 years uh, earlier. 40 years earlier, it was like, all right, I am the king of the forest, and I'm ready to take over, and we'll get him out of here, you know, and come on, guys, just follow me. And he's got all of this ambition. He's got all of this confidence and faith and education and talent and, and connections and all of these uh, kinds of things. Now, by the time God comes to him and says, all right, here we go now. Let, we're going to move out on, on all of this. I mean, he has no more confidence he has no more burning desire to change the world, to make a difference in, in the world and all. He has deliberately taken himself out of circulation. And, and again, all he wants to do is just eat a good meal every day, have a, a, a little time with his family, be left alone, walk with God, and then quietly pass off of the scene. God, if you had come 40 years earlier, I mean, I'd have, I'd have jumped in. I mean, 40 years earlier, I had something to offer you. I mean, I had strength. I had desire. I had vision. I had confidence. I had all this. God, you are fully 40 years too late. You have got the wrong guy. Now, this is not something that's limited only to Moses when the Lord calls us to do something like this. 
over and over again in, in the scriptures, when you see God call men and women to serve him, their first reaction is an unbelievable, really a paralyzing, Moses isn't alone, but oftentimes a paralyzing uh, sense of um, uh, their own inadequacy for what it is that God is calling them to do. And almost always the excuse is, whoa, 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 wait a second. You better double check that address on that telegram because I think you came to the wrong bush here, out here. I think you've got the wrong guy on, on uh, this. And, and, so we'll, uh, and, uh, and so he gives the excuse, excuse number one, who am, am I? Beautiful. The Lord's not going to accept Moses' excuses. And, uh, and I think it's good for us to know that an overwhelming sense of our inadequacy for anything that God is calling us to do is not a legitimate excuse for not doing it. Everybody feels that. Everybody feels that. And if he accepted that as an excuse right out of the gate, nobody would be doing anything. And he would not have the ability to add his great power and what he brings to a calling on an individual life to guarantee their success. So if you sit here today and God is calling you to do something, you say, who am I and I'm not going to do it. You've got the wrong guy. I mean, if you'd caught me, you know, five years earlier or something like that, Lord, and, and, and all of that, but no way, I'm not going to do that. And surely you'll understand that I'm not, no, God won't understand that. And he won't let that excuse uh, uh, hold. So what is God's answer to this, uh, who am I? So he said, verse 12, I will certainly be with you the promise of his presence and that is the guarantee of success Egypt knows I mean uh, uh, Moses knows all about Egypt he knows about its structure he knows about its wealth he knows about its power he knows about its education he knows about its military he knows how big a deal it is going to be he can only imagine how big of a deal it's going to be to try and get two to three million Jews who are the lifeblood of the economy of Egypt out of Egypt without everybody being slaughtered in a war I mean he just can't see how this this thing can happen and God just comes in and and he and he says you're going to be successful because I will be with you I'm not sending you to do this alone, Moses. We're going to do this together. We're going to do it together on things. And I just want you to bring your little five loaves and your two little fishes along on this thing. And I'm going to bring everything that I am in on this thing. That's why we're going to be successful. Because of who I am and what I am. There's an old saying, one plus God is a majority. It's actually more one-sided than that. None plus God is a majority on things. So Moses looks at this thing and says, this is going to be impossible. There's no way I can do it. And God says, what's all this I stuff? I'm going to be with you. That's the guarantee of, of, uh, of success. I think it's very, very interesting, too, in the light of the whole uh, current obsession with you know, the self-esteem in our culture and all of that, that God doesn't do anything to try and nurture his self-esteem. Moses, come on. Let's get on, you know, Casey's little train here at Disneyland again. You ever been on that one? Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? It's a long line, though, when there's lines on that thing, because you only get so many people on it. And what's that train do? It starts to go up that hill, and what's it say? I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Don't you love Walt just building us up and our self-esteem? I think I can, I think I can. And then it gets to the top and then it goes over and then I know I can, I know I can, I know I can, I know I can. And so we got this whole kind of deal going. I'm not putting the thing down. I am, but I'm not putting, meaning to put the thing down. But you got all this whole self-esteem. Come on, now think positive and, and all of these kinds of things. And listen, don't sell yourself short, Moses. Come here. Come, come here. You know. I want you to say, I am a promise. With a capital P. 
I, you know, I happen to love that song, by the way, so I'm not trying to put that down either. But anyway, so what am I trying to do here on this? Listen, I've got to tell you this. I mean, one of the greatest memories of my whole life is holding one of my granddaughters at Disneyland, and, and we're waiting in a particular area, and she sang that over and over to me, and I just kept prompting her to sing it again and again. It was so good. I like kids to say that. But God doesn't say to Moses, come on, Moses, don't sell yourself short. You've got something to offer here. You can do it, and, and all of this, this uh, kind of, of thing. He just comes in, and, and, and our, our success in, in, the, in whatever God calls us to do. It doesn't depend on our self-esteem. We don't have to... We don't have, in fact, we shouldn't feel confident we can do anything apart from God. So it's not tied to how good I feel about myself. What I've got to do is when God calls us to do something like that, you obey Him. I obey Him. And it's, it's it, the whole thing, God's whole plan depends upon Him and just our simple obedience uh, to Him. No little pep talk. God doesn't take Him by the hand and put His arm around His shoulder or anything. He just, in essence, says, you're going to be successful because of who I am. And then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I came... Uh, oh, no, he's saying, And this will be a sign, verse 12, to you that I have sent you when you have brought the children the people out of Egypt you shall serve God on this mountain you're going to be successful you're going to come back here where you got these sheep and where I'm talking to you and you're going to you're going to bring the whole group of the children of Israel out of the land and we're going to meet here once again that's how sure it is and then and then Moses said uh, to God indeed when I come and this is his second excuse now he's really dragging his feet he said, he said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? Then what do I say to them? And Moses is saying, I don't even know your name. So if I go to talk to the children of Israel and the leaders and say, Listen, God wants us to clear out now, and he sent me to tell you this, and we're going to do these things. God, they're going to ask me what your name is. I don't even know what your name is. Now, they, were never going to, they didn't ask him that. We, we worry about a lot of things that never come to pass in, in our service to the Lord. So what, they're going to ask me what your name is. What's your name? I don't even know your name. And God said to Moses, and it's just one of the beautiful verses in the Bible, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And that's how God names himself. I am that I am. <laughs> it always just cracks me up. I mean, he is so sure of who he is. And, and the, the whole deal is, I am, is a sense, is, is not, I was, and I'm going to be. It, it means, when he says, I am, he's saying, I am self-existent. I am in and of myself. I am not created. I am not made. I am not who I am and what I am because I've been created in any way. I am self-existent. I am in a category of one in all of everything, <laughs> creation and beyond. But when he says, I am, he's also communicating that I live outside of the time uh, space continuum kind of a deal. I don't live within the confines of time. I don't live where you live. I don't live in a place where there's a past and there's a present and there's a future. I fill all of the past and the present and the future all at the same time. That's who I am. And, and so he's, he's talking about the, uh, that, that fact. Lives outside of time. He's self-existent, uncreated, eternal. Uh, no beginning and no, no end. He exists in the eternal present tense. Now, it's uh, beautiful because when he says, I am who I am, and he talks about, I tell the Israel, I am has sent me uh, to you. That, that, those words, I am, they come from four uh, Hebrew letters, uh, YHWH, also known as the Tetragamatron, and that means four letters. And, and, uh, uh, so, and, and the problem is, is that we don't even know how to 
uh, pronounce God's name uh, anymore, how to pronounce this I am. When you read in the Bible and you see Lord, it's good to know, you see Lord in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, when you see it in all caps, it is this name that God uses for himself. When you see it in uh, uh, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, then the word that is used for, for God typically in that setting is Adonai or Elohim. It is not Yahweh. So when you see it in all caps, it is God, uh, referring to God in this way as, as uh, Yahweh. Now one of the problems with trying to understand what that name means today is that the ancient Hebrew alphabet didn't have any actual vowels. And uh, so we don't know what vowels were, were used with the YHWH. And then later in Jewish history, at about the time of the Second Temple, uh, the priests began to get kind of a little superstitious about the name, and they felt that there was supernatural power just associated with the name uh, YHWH on, on the page and the vowels that were a part of it. And so they considered it the name to be too sacred to even utter and then ultimately too sacred to even write down on the page and and so it was replaced with uh, Adonai and then the copyists when they would copy and they would come to that that place where Yahweh was they would no longer write Yahweh or whatever it actually was they would just write in the name because they felt his actual name was too holy to even write. Now the problem with all of that is, is that pretty soon nobody was using his name, not in writing and not in speech, and so over time they lost track of, of it. No record for what are the vowels associated with, with those other letters to know what his name uh, means. So sometimes you'll see uh, him spoken of as Yahweh in a reference to I am. Uh, sometimes Jehovah is used, uh, but that's probably not as accurate as Yahweh as, as an expression for him as his name here, uh, capital L-O-R-D. And uh, so he says, you tell them when, when you come to them, and, uh, and, and they, if they ask you what my name is, that's my name that you should, should uh, tell them. And then um, in verse 15, He said to Moses, You shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you, and that is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. The God who your fathers served is now on the scene. Back, I'm going to be faithful to you. So that's what you're to say to them. You're also uh, to, uh, to go and to gather the elders of Israel, the leaders of, of them in, in their bondage, and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. In other words, Moses is going to inform them. God has been compassionate. He has been watching what's going on. And I have said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then they will heed your voice. Important to remember this for next week. Is Moses, you're going to tell them about me and you're going to tell them about my plan for their lives and they're going to listen to you. You're wondering whether they're going to care about my name or they're going to drag their feet. Listen, they're eager to get out uh, on things. They will listen to your voice and you shall come. You and the elders of Israel go to the king of Egypt. Say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Make a simple request of Pharaoh. And then God said, but I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even with a mighty hand. He tells Moses ahead of time, I want you to go and ask him to let us, my people go out for three days to worship me. But I'm telling you ahead of time, he's not going to let you go. So he's just preparing for failure. So it, it, That's the response you're, you're going to get. So don't assume you're in my will on the basis of everything going you know, smoothly all the time. 
And, and so he's not going to let you go. And so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. He's, he thinks he's tough and he's going to play hardball, but he doesn't know I, I'm in uh, quadruple A or whatever uh, league uh, God is in. And so if I, the, I'm going to make sure that you do, they do get out, even though he's going to resist you initially. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go out empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of those who uh, dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters and so you shall plunder the Egyptians and so God informs them that not only am I going to deliver them but I am I am going to make sure that um, they are repaid by Egypt for all of their long years of slave labor where they haven't been paid to Egypt God had promised all that to Abraham uh, hundreds of years earlier Genesis chapter 15 he said uh, Abraham knows certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years and also the nation uh, whom they serve I will judge and after they will come out with great possessions and so uh, that's going to be the case and God promises it to be so and so here is Moses he has God's calling he has God's commissioning he has the guarantee of success but he is not through making his excuses and they will sound very familiar to many of us and we'll continue to look at that Lord willing next week let's stand together and if the worship team would come forward